Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show today on the james altucher show in part one of this Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner, also wrote the book, just came out, Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. It is the Bible of every piece of information you ever wanted to know about COVID, drugs, vaccines, the FDA, our response, the economic lockdowns. He answered a lot of my questions in part one. Part two covers more of the vaccines, immunity, and more FDA questions. Since he was the FDA commissioner, I was really curious why we need, if I have a terminal disease, why do I have to wait years and years and years and billions of dollars to be spent for a drug that I think might save my life? And he was gracious enough to answer that question as well. So here's part two. Part one is released the same day as today. Knock yourself out. Is there a danger with the vaccine kind of simulating the chronic infection process. So someone has COVID, then six months later, they get the vaccine. By this time, their body's like, hmm, I've dealt with this before. And the, the, and the virus says, hmm, I've met this person before. And things start to happen. Because I, I, I and, and again, this is not vax or anti-vax or anything. I'm just curious, are there dangers in terms of mutations with the vaccines? Yeah, no, it's it's a good question, and this is, and and that very question is why a lot of people were against the idea of uh, only partially vaccinating people. So if you remember the whole debate that went on, where and England went down this road, um, where they only they gave one dose to people and they withheld the second dose to try to extend the supply, 
part of the argument against doing that was that if we just partially vaccinate a whole bunch of people and they have partial immunity, they're going to be more prone to developing an infection that they, they don't get really sick from it, but they can't clear it either. And now they become chronically infected. And that was part of the reason. Um, so, you know, you do create a circumstance where if you have people who are partially immunized, but, but not really fully protected. So immunocompromised people, and that's part of the reason that we're delivering booster shots to, to the immunocompromised, you could theoretically create the circumstance where um, you get more escape. And, and that's why, you know, there's a presumption that we're going to have to update these vaccines over time, that the virus will evolve slowly over time. Um, and we'll need to have new vaccines in the future. One of the one of the debates going on right now, and there's no um, consensus on this yet. There's actually even no process for reaching a consensus. We're going to need to develop some kind of global process for coming to a consensus around what the next vaccine is going to look like, like we have for flu. But, you know, the debate going on right now is do we if we're going to fashion a new vaccine, should we do it off of the Delta backbone um, and make a presumption, make an assumption that the next variant that threatens us is going to be within the Delta lineage. And that's a debate going on right now in in virology circles. I'm on the board of Pfizer, as you know, um, Pfizer, Moderna, all the companies are developing Delta variant vaccines, not necessarily because there's an assumption we're going to need to use it, but you want to have it in your back pocket. So every time a new variant comes along, the vaccine manufacturers develop at least the starting point for making a vaccine against that new variant so that we're ready to go if something does really pop. And just in case the variant is not cured by the original vaccine. Just in case a new the original vaccine doesn't cover the new variant well. I mean, remember we're still we're using a vaccine right now and it's it it's fortunate that it's still effective in this setting, but we're using a vaccine right now that's sort of, you know, two generations removed from the original virus on which it was designed. It was designed against the Wuhan variant. We had the Wuhan variant. Then we had B117 become epidemic around the world. Now it's we're on to Delta. So we're a couple of generations of this virus removed from the variant on which this vaccine was premised. And the vaccines are still very effective um, and still very uh, Against protective. Delta, you mean? It's still, it's still against protecting- Against Delta, right. It's still providing protection against Delta, even though it was fashioned against a very different variant. Now, what about vaccines versus drugs? So- uh, remdesivir was used early on. I think when the president had COVID, he used Regeneron or some cocktail of, of drugs. I had COVID. I didn't use anything. I, the doctors just told me to use Tylenol. What's the deal? If you're not, if you're not in the demographic that's going to maybe die from this, but you're still very sick, what, how, how come we're not using more, more drugs or figuring out what drugs could, could alleviate symptoms and, and help you survive? Because we don't we don't have them. I mean, what we've been doing to date is trying to repurpose existing drugs for the treatment of COVID. We found some that are effective for treating the sort of symptoms of COVID, like steroids in the setting of people who are have severe disease. The antibodies were the first line of defense, the first drugs that we were able to scale. Um, there was always a presumption that that antibodies would be the first line of defense against a novel virus. We had plenty of precedent for that yet we still weren't in a position to mass produce them in the way we should have been. And even now there's shortages of the antibodies. The Biden administration what, what, what is an antibody medicine? I don't understand. What is that? So an antibody, the Regeneron drug is, is an antibody-based drug or, or Lilly's drug is an antibody-based drug. And what it basically is, is when you get vaccinated, the vaccine stimulates your body to make antibodies against the virus. Those antibodies bind to the virus. They, they, they're taught to recognize the virus. They bind to the virus. And once they bind to the virus, it triggers other immune cells to then clear the virus from your system. And that's how you, you fight a disease. 
the antibody drugs are basically the same premise. And rather than stimulating your body to make those antibodies, you're basically infusing them. So you're, you're taking an intact immune system, putting it in a bottle and infusing it into a person. So you're basically giving them an intact immune system. We have a very good technology for making fully human antibodies using recombinant technology. Regeneron's expert in this, Lilly is, there's dozens and dozens of other companies that do this. And we knew that this was a very good approach a very good early approach to trying to combat a novel virus. We had fashioned a therapeutic antibody that's effective against Ebola. We had fashioned one that was effective against MERS. Um, and we fashioned one that's very effective. We fashioned more than one. Veer has one, Lilly, uh, Regeneron, that are very effective against SARS-CoV-2. The problem is we just can't make enough of them. Um, so we didn't have the capacity in the US. Nobody had sort of thought about how do we create uh, an available capacity to be able to scale the manufacture of an antibody in a crisis like this. The other drug that could be available, to your point, is a drug like a Tamiflu for COVID, a drug that you take it as a pill um, and it inhibits viral replication. So it basically blocks the virus from being able to replicate and helps prevent the onset of severe disease or helps treat um, disease and pre prevent progression of disease, a lot like we use Tamiflu for influenza. There's companies working on that, including Pfizer, where, where I'm involved. Um, Pfizer has one in advanced development. It's a protease inhibitor. Merck has one that looks very promising that's in advanced development. Roche has one that's a little bit further behind. Any one of these drugs could end up working. Um, and if not, I think another drug will. I think this this is a what we call a druggable target. This coronavirus is not, it's not like HIV, where it's such a complex virus in terms of how it replicates that it's going to be very hard to make effective drugs that block viral replication. This coronavirus replicates through mechanisms that we have um, become accustomed to developing drugs against in other contexts. So we should be able to figure this out. We will, in my view, we will eventually have a pill that's safe and effective that you can take to help prevent onset of disease in people who are diagnosed early. And whether it's one of the current drugs in development or something that gets developed six months from now that's in early development now that we're not paying attention to, I think something's going to come along and that's going to dramatically change the landscape because then when people get diagnosed, there'll be an, an, an incentive to get diagnosed early because there'll be a drug you could take that hopefully will substantially reduce your risk of having progressive symptoms and developing severe disease and getting really sick. So in the, so, so, so a, why, why didn't we do that already? Like why, like the, are vaccines easier to make than these drugs or what's, Cause that would have been great to take one of these drugs as soon as I got it. Like that was the worst 20 days of my life because there was no drug. Yeah. You know, it's a good question. Uh, I, in some respects, the, the technology for developing the vaccines that we used in this instance, using fully synthetic um, constructs to develop a vaccine uh, using just the genomic information. So this was we were at a technological inflection point. Where we were able to derive these vaccine constructs using fully synthetic tools. In some respects, that allowed us to come up with vaccine constructs more quickly than screening drugs against these novel viral targets. And so the, the drug making process, you know, we're relying on older technology right now. I think the next generation of drugs that are put into development will rely on newer technology. And so you're going to see more novelty um, but the first generation of drugs, what we were doing and what we're still doing really is kind of repurposing antivirals that we had already developed for other purposes or, or antiviral constructs that we had developed for other purposes against coronavirus. But it is, it was, it is a longer process. And, and also, you know, the, if you, 
if you want to develop a drug that prevents progression of symptoms or can be used as a prophylaxis where if you're exposed to COVID, you can take a drug and it prevents you from getting COVID, doing those trials is hard and it's it's gotten even more difficult because if you're trying to prove that the drug prevents progression of symptoms, the reality is most people don't progress. Most people who get COVID don't have progressive symptoms. They do well. And in a population that's now heavily vaccinated or heavily exposed to COVID, running a clinical trial to prove that a drug prevents progression to severe disease is going to be very hard. And I think that's why you're going to see the clinical development process for drugs go more slowly going forward, because at least running the trials here in the U.S. are going to be difficult because 76 percent of adults over the age of 18 have had at least one dose of vaccine. And of the remaining um, percent, 24 percent of the population, probably half of them already had COVID. So there's not a big pool of people who don't have some level of immunity against COVID at this point. How long does immunity last, whether it's from getting it or getting a vaccine? Yeah, the short answer is we don't know. And we don't, there's a, we don't understand um, long-term immunity in the setting of SARS-CoV-2 because we haven't been studying long enough. You know, the, the assumption is that it's going to sit somewhere in between seasonal coronavirus and SARS and MERS. With SARS and MERS, SARS-1 and MERS, people developed a very durable immunity. Um, people got very sick from it and they developed immunity that lasted years and in some cases a decade or more. With a seasonal coronavirus, the immunity you get from a seasonal coronavirus only lasts sometimes a year. That's why we keep getting reinfected with coronaviruses. There's an assumption that this is going to sit somewhere in the middle, that the immunity is going to persist longer than a year, but not 10 years. Um, but we, we don't understand the, the answer to that question. We certainly, don't, we certainly don't know the answer to that question in the setting of naturally acquired immunity because we're doing a, a poor job of studying people who've been naturally infected in perpetuity. We have a better sense of how long the immunity lasts um, from vaccination because we're actually studying that very carefully. Um, but what we, we don't know is how long is the immunity going to last from vaccination if we give a booster. Um, you know, the first two doses of the vaccine were given very closely, closely together, three weeks apart in the case of Pfizer, four weeks apart in the case of Moderna. And one of the prices you might pay for having given those doses so closely together is the durability wasn't as long that the second dose wasn't sort of a true booster that induced long-term immune memory. And by giving a third dose, then you're going to induce longer-term uh, immune memory. Now, we don't know. It's speculation because we just we don't have the data because we haven't followed people long enough. But, um, but the presumption is that at least from natural infection, you're going to have a durable immunity. And from the vaccines, you, people do have a durable immunity, at least uh, protection against severe disease and hospitalization, even if they see some declining immunity against any infection. And with a third with a third booster, there's some reason to believe that you can extend the durability of that protection. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, 
I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. With vaccines, what's the data now? Like, so we've had the vaccines around for a while. Some people complain about vaccines. Most people are, you got to get a vaccine. You know, some cities are mandating vaccines or some companies are mandating vaccines. What's the actual data show now? It has COVID dramatically declined because of the rise in vaccine use? Like, how are there problems that were unexpected? Like, what's the final word, if there is one, or close to the final word on vaccines, on these vaccines? I think I think the final word is these vaccines are safe and effective, and they've re- proved remarkably effective. Three hundred eighty million Americans have uh, the three hundred eighty million doses have been administered in the United States. Um, there's been five point eight billion people vaccinated, vaccines delivered globally. Not all of them are the same vaccines, obviously used in the U.S., but there's been a lot of people who've been vaccinated against COVID at this point, and so you have a very large data set. You have an enormous data set, and you have that data set over a prolonged period of time. I mean, there's people who you know were vaccinated two years ago in the clinical trials. So you have a very robust data set to uh, demonstrate the performance of these vaccines, not just their efficacy, but their safety. And, and what we're seeing in the United States is the vast majority of people who are developing severe disease and certainly the vast majority of people being hospitalized and um, getting very sick are people who are unvaccinated. More than 90% of the hospitalizations are among unvaccinated individuals. And even though a lot of people in the U.S. are vaccinated, there's still on an absolute basis a lot of people who aren't. And Delta is so contagious that it's finding its way into pockets of vulnerability. And what you have also is a situation where, um, you know, the unvaccinated aren't sort of dispersed sporadically through society. There's certain social and geographic compartments where you have a higher clustering of people who are unvaccinated because they've chosen to go unvaccinated. They're in hard to reach communities or in underserved communities. And so Delta finds its way into those pockets of vulnerability and ends up infecting people uh, because it's so contagious. One of the most contagious respiratory viruses we know of. So the vast majority of people who are being affected by this Delta wave are the unvaccinated. Um, The vaccines are largely doing their job in protecting people who um, got fully vaccinated. And so in the future, as you point out in the book, we're going to have a pandemic again, and it's not going to be related to SARS or COVID at all, be something new that that we're not ready for. And I don't think the world can afford another lockdown again. Like, it's not like there's a quadrillion dollars ready to spend every time we get sick. Like, and you offer solutions. What, what, What should we do better next time? Well, we need to have an agency capable of sort of surfacing this information in a real-time basis and better informing the response. We need to have the capacities to scale the response, deploy diagnostic tests at scale, manufacture antibodies at scale. So we need to think about how we build those capacities and keep them hot, keep them ready. We can't just create what we used to call a warm base where you build a whole bunch of infrastructure and mothball it because it's not ready when you need it. You have to keep it 
operating. I also think we need to think differently about how we gather information abroad. We can't rely on the good graces of other nations to inform us when they're host to an emerging infection um, because countries don't do that. China didn't do it in this instance, and we have repeated episodes in history where countries concealed information. And if anything, COVID conditioned countries to be even less forthcoming because when the British raised their hand and said, we have this concerning new variant called B117 that seems to be much more contagious, what's the first thing the French did? They closed the channel. So now any country looks at that and they said, if we notify the world that we have an outbreak of a new variant or a new virus, everyone's going to isolate us. So what that means is we need to get our national, our tools of national security more engaged in this mission. We're going to need to figure out how to gather the information, not just rely on people to give it to us willingly. We've always relied on, you know, multilateral agreements and public health authorities to operate globally. And public health agencies never wanted our tools of national security and our foreign intelligence agencies anywhere near this mission. I don't think we can afford that luxury anymore. Every other country is gathering this information. We now know there was information that was obtainable, certainly by mid-December and probably earlier than that, inside China, if we were looking, that would have tipped us off to the fact that they had a novel coronavirus, that there was asymptomatic transmission, that there was human-to-human -human transmission. We now know there were dozens of samples set off, sent off as sequencing by mid-December and probably earlier than that. We just know about the ones in mid-December. That's what's been publicly reported. Any one of those was electronic information that could have been intercepted. So there was information to be had that could have informed us of, of what was going on. And in the hands of a competent political response, you know, that could have been a four-week head start on really understanding uh, the gravity of the situation that this virus posed. And certainly a two-week head start. I mean, two weeks would have been easy. Four weeks was possible. Um, and as it were, we had to wait for China to finally divulge this information by mid-January that we started to learn about the true severity. And at that point, it was out of control. So with a two-month head start, you're saying we could have done a lot more testing. We could have started the vaccine process or the drug process much earlier on. We might not have had to, you know, now in retrospect, we may need, maybe could have used metrics to determine lockdowns like, okay, a certain number of cases or, you know, whatever, instead of saying the entire country has to lock down. There's so many more questions I have actually, but I recommend people read the book. It really is the Bible of, of what happened, when it happened, all the data. It answers all the questions people argue about every day on social media in various conspiracy theory threads or whatever. I have a, one more question, which is a more generic FDA question. You were the head of the FDA, and I've been meaning to ask someone who has been the head of the FDA this question. If I have cancer, this has nothing to do with COVID. If I have cancer, if someone has cancer and a, a, good, a cancer drug that looks interesting passes phase two, so it's roughly safe for humans, I think that's, that's phase two, why can't I choose to take it? Why do I have to wait another 10 years and, and a $2 billion spent for phase four to happen? Well, look, there, there are mechanisms to provide drugs earlier to patients while they're still in clinical development. Uh, expanded access is a mechanism that the agency operationalizes to make it easier for uh, patients to get access to drugs that are still quote unquote experimental and aren't fully approved yet. In many cases, the reason why the drug isn't made available is because the companies don't make them available. And in many cases, the companies don't make it available because they, they argue, well, if we make it available outside of a clinical trial, we're not gonna be able to enroll out clinical trial. People, if they can get it outside the trial, why would they enroll in our trial? And Part of, the, part of that is because we still do in certain settings, and this isn't true in oncology anymore. In oncology, you said we're not doing this anymore, but we still do placebo trials where we say, to, if to enter the clinical trial, you can either get, you're gonna be randomized to either get the drug or get a placebo. And if people look at that and they say, okay, I can get the drug through expanded access and I know I'm getting the drug, or I can enter the clinical trial 
and I'm either going to get the drug or get a placebo, they say, I'm not entering the trial. I'm going to use expanded access. And so companies don't offer expanded access because they worry that it will disincentivize people from entering that trial. Now, I think it's unethical in the setting of a disease that we know is terminal to randomize patients to a placebo pill. And in oncology, when I was at the agency, we stood up and said, we're not, except in, in, in very select circumstances, in the setting of cancer, we're not going to do placebo trials anymore. We're going to use open label studies or use historical controls where we compare patients to historical patients where we know what the outcome was rather than randomizing patients to placebo. And if you go down that route, I think that is going to open up more opportunities to both have the clinical trial and have the expanded access available side by side in the setting of oncology. But why even have a stage three or stage four? Like, just let me choose. And then the data will show from, you know, population data. Uh, so it's not a, it's not a scientifically controlled experiment. It's, it's another way of gathering data. If, if, time will tell that this drug works or doesn't work. Well, look, this is, I mean, this is where there's a vigorous debate going on. You see people on the other side of this question arguing strenuously that we're too permissive, that, that we're approving drugs on the basis of clinical trial data that isn't uh, rigorous enough. And not only should we have a phase three, but we should have a really large phase three. And there's a really robust debate going on constantly. I mean, I was, we were at FDA constantly in the middle of this discussion where there were people on both sides of it. I think that we are slowly evolving towards a recognition that empiric evidence isn't the only form of evidence, that the old model of the frequentist approach, we have a randomized trial and you try to control all the variables except for the one that you're trying to study, you know, does the patient live longer or not with the drug? In an age when you can collect very large data sets and we have computational tools for controlling for the variables in those data sets, and we've gotten really good at collecting and analyzing data computationally, you don't need to design the perfect experiment to be able to isolate for the question you're trying to answer. I mean, people in, you know, investors use large data sets all the time and economists and derive pretty accurate answers off those data sets. We, we are starting to migrate that into healthcare, and I think we're starting to gain more acceptance around it, but it still is controversial. There still is a large group of people who say that there's nothing that could be as certain as the old frequentist approach, and we're never going to be able to substitute real-world data for that. My argument would be that might be true now, but the data sets are getting so robust, our ability to collect data is getting so robust, and our ability to analyze it using computational tools is getting so sophisticated that there will be a time when that could give you an answer more efficiently and maybe with more accuracy than a carefully controlled experiment. I mean, we, we've got to allow for that because the tools are getting better. Well, thank you so much. I've been dying to ask that question for like a decade. So thank you for answering that. Scott Gottlieb, author of, former FDA commissioner, first and foremost, and then the author of a great new book, Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. This for me right now is the Bible of what happened, when it happened, why it happened, and what's going to happen next. And I really appreciate you writing that book and coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It's one thing falling in love with a house. Picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. 
Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.